Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. Though it may sound suspiciously granola and privileged, reconnecting with nature is an inherently radical move, particularly in a time of overdevelopment and climate change. Taking time to dwell in and with whatever greenery or water is around you just might reframe your experience of the world, perhaps in a deeper sense than merely putting your problems into perspective, because there are plenty of material needs that sitting in a park can't fix. In this episode, I speak with two writers who've engaged with what that reconnection brings. Leanne Shapton, who reviewed Waterlog, a swimming memoir by Roger Deakin in the August issue, and Gillian Osborne, whose essay collection, Green, 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 was excerpted in the July issues reading section. Here's my conversation with Leanne. I thought I would start off by asking about your most recent swim. And if it wasn't indelible, that's fine. I'm just okay. curious because you had this connection to the <laughs> sport. <laughs> it's indelible now because <laughs> you're keeping it. <laughs> um, well, if it sucks, it was, we'll cut it out. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, it was a really boring swim. No, I got up this morning at around 730, looked out. I'm on the shore right now. And I turned to my daughter and said, are you going to come do my swim with me? Because every day I try to get out, unless it's super choppy and I can't deal with the waves. There's a beach that runs parallel to this row of cottages. I mentioned it in the piece. And so I got in today. The current was pretty strong. And so if I swim, I guess it's north, I, uh, I go against this pretty strong current. And it's kind of like one of those infinity pools where you're swimming against the the rush of water. And then on the way back, it's just so fun because the current just carries you down. So that was my latest swim in the Peconic, in Peconic Bay out on the North Fork of Long Island. Oh, and is the water still kind of ice cold or is it warming up? So we're almost, a, I don't know, I'm very picky about the temperature. <laughs> yeah, no, it's really warm. It's really warm oh, in the good. bay on the sound side of the um, Long Island sound side of the fork it's a little colder but here it's like bath water that you've left for a couple hours <laughs> it's kind of murky like that too it's, there's a lot of seaweed in it it's yeah. not crystal clear um but yeah i i've come to really really love it yeah and toward the beginning of this review you quote a passage from Waterlog, which says that swimming, quote, certainly appeals to free spirits, which is why the talk is invariably so good in those little spontaneous bankside, beach or poolside parliaments that spring up wherever two or three swimmers are gathered, as though the water's fluency were contagious, end quote. And I wanted to, to talk about that idea of contagion. Because one of the fascinating things about this review is the degree to which you've allowed Deacon's fluency to influence your own. For instance, you have these indelible swim vignettes between sections where you give these Deacon-esque glimpses into your own swimming memories. And it's refreshingly different <laughs> from the sense if of... If only. <laughs> well, it, it, but it is. It's very interesting. And it, it's very different from the critical remove that critics try to cite in their reviews and it feels right. generous and playful and uh, fluid. How present were questions of influence for you when you were writing this? Yeah, well, I mean, A, I'm grateful to Harper's for letting me do those little, you know, these little episodes in the review where, you know, I talk about very personally about these swims that from my childhood are, are kind of indelible because they're beautiful and new and then in my adulthood, they're, they're kind of dark and indelible because of because of how memory works and how aging works. So, yeah, I'm grateful that 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 Harper's was very, you know, there was no question about those little parts. And I, I do try to I mean, I, I do think it was part of um, me thinking about this review was Deacon's in the water and that's one feeling and he's out of the water and that's another feeling in and out and in and out. And though his style doesn't change there is a sense of going in and out of, of elements and the kind of thinking you do when you're in water and the kind of memories you have about, I mean, to me, I do have almost, if I think about 
swimming in open water. I see it as a landscape in my memory. It's like I'm watching myself over there. And whereas in a pool, it's a black line on the bottom and it's, I don't know, like a different bracket or it's a different um, frame lens or something. But about the the talking, I really, I mean, I really love that passage so much because you do make friends and you do talk and you're, you know, you're naked with strangers sometimes in this open water and that feeling of being in it together, either enjoying it or feeling the same temperature as everybody else, it does get you talking and it does bind you. And yeah, the sort of the parliament of of conversation happens. And I do think, again, it's because you're, you're in an element that could kill you. Like you sort of, <laughs> you know, you're sort of, you get naked and you get in and it's a dangerous place. And so humans, you know, so quickly you could all be imperiled, but you're not. And so your, you know, your sense of humor is a little sharper and your, your sense of community is a little, you know, you're all a little bit probably in the back of your mind or periphery, making sure nobody drowns, you know, right. especially when there, if there's children in that group, right. There's always this radar of animal radar that, that, that adults can have in that situation. I mean, also, you know, you're talking about this kind of animal sharpness and I mean, this is true on ground as well, but it's really just, it's only your body protecting yourself from drowning. You are the only thing that mm-hmm. are propelling you through this water, unless it's, you know, unless you're in waves and you've just got to like, like when you, when you discuss the, sometimes the fear that comes from not seeing the bottom of where you're swimming and how palpable that fear can be, even for someone who is a very experienced swimmer and this, this, the, the yeah, mystery and yeah. the unknowableness of what's at the bottom and when your feet aren't touching. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, uh, you're just so vulnerable in water. And I think, you know, for a long time, sailors weren't taught to swim to sort of, you know, learn respect of, of the water, you know, like learning to swim was a huge um, evolutionary step, I think, for humans. <laughs> really, <laughs> really was. I always like to think about, you know, these threshold moments where the body adapts, but is still sort of vulnerable. The vulnerability of swimming in open water, I think, makes us conversationally more vulnerable. And yeah, there's that thing I also write about how you, you kind of, your body has a different language in the water. You know, when you touch the bottom, you kind of know your scale in it. You keep people away from you because you know how it feels when someone puts a a hand on your shoulder. It's so alarming or, you know, this, this idea. So you've created kind of this radius around you where, you know, physically where the safety zone is. It's really interesting. It's, and you know, that happens in pools too, but even more so when you can't see the bottom. Yeah. Or, you know, if you cross too far past either a buoy or, you know, in water that where kind of the safe area ends and the current begins, you know, there is the, the permeability, the, yeah, transcending of borders is, it's all fluid. And I wanted to talk about your memoir, Swimming Studies. And you also write about this in the review, about your history as a competitive swimmer. And could you tell us more about that background and the differences between pool swimming and open water swimming? I mean, we're sort of touching on that just now, but as someone who once participated in the Olympic trials, it would be interesting to hear your thought. <laughs> yeah, those days. I mean, I forgot every time the Olympic trials and the Olympics come along, I just, I, I'm so riveted. And, you know, my heart is in my throat kind of watching these swimmers, you know, try to either make the team or try to uh, medal. So I got into swimming through my brother, there was a pool in the park behind our house in suburban Ontario, Mississauga, a suburb of Toronto. And I started to race probably when I was nine and I was pretty good at it. And again, it's one of those things when you're pretty good at something, you just want more of it and um, more praise and more like, it's very motivating. And so I went um, and swam very seriously in, in club, like club swimming. And then from there, you know, went to provincial meets, the national meets, and then things like the trials where, uh, you know, in 88, I placed, I think, eighth overall in Canada in the 100-meter breaststroke, but 
you know, in 92, I had taken a year off. I sort of finished high school early, taken a year off, went to London, and then got back in the pool sort of late in the four-year process. And at the 92 Olympics, I was, I think, 36th in Canada. <laughs> it was a pretty, pretty big fall from top eight. So yeah, when I, when I was trying to play swimming, you know, as an adult, place that discipline and place all that training, you know, I wondered what, what use it was for as an adult. And, that, and swimming studies came out of that because I realized that the discipline, the slog, the put your head down and, and do it and work really hard, it applied to art, it applied to writing, it applied to sort of everything. And now, you know, that was 2012. And now I have have a have a kid and it does apply to parenting you just put in you put in the time so yeah I mean and writing you know writing this review of the book now um, I think I mentioned it too I love that book and, and fi- discovering that book when I was doing research for swimming studies I just thought it was a classic because it just reads like a classic it's incredible and you know it was published in 1999 so I must have encountered it almost 10 years later so when Harper's contacted me to do the review. I thought it was already in American print. So good on Tin House for for publishing it in, in the States. Good timing, I think. Also, there's no there's no pulpit climate change kind of, you know, I mean, well, I think everything should be on a pulpit with climate change. Um, there's none of that uh, urgency. There's none of that language, but it is very, very political. And, you know, he was a true activist, Deacon. So you could read it then, you could read it now. The issues are still the same, if worse. So, oh, maybe a little, no, probably worse. For, for certain worse, for certain worse. But we, could you talk about that political, God forgive me, undercurrent of the deacon? <laughs> yes, I mean, it, it was part of the research because it's not, you can hear it in the book, in the one volume, but, you know, in reading his other work in hearing interviews with him in all of his work and and sort of seeing the history and where he lived you get a much larger picture of what and how he cared about the environment and what a what a deep environmentalist he was i mean i don't know the guy maybe like he could be he could have been like just super annoying but based on his work and based on his books and based on his archives at the university of anglia i mean the articles the protests the teaching, you know, he put in the the committees he founded and just the work he did on his property to his pond, you know, how he sort of husbanded the earth and, and you know, little things. That moat. I, yeah, the moat. Sorry, <laughs> it isn't a pond, it's a moat. And I learned things like, um, I love the line where he said something like, when you see a bunch of trees being planted, something something bad is up. Whereas, you know, tree planting, you know, it's like, you think it's a good thing, but he goes much deeper into like, no, or the idea that the heritage, the sort of heritage industry is actually unwilding the planet. And, and so there's, you know, there's these incremental little nuances in, in learning about, you know, his perspective on the environment. I mean, I should know this stuff, but, and yeah, and I do think what struck me was when, when I, if you look up images of swimming, it's, it's all pools. And I thought that was so sad that generally in our visual psyches and in our visual language, when we say swimming, we say chlorine and pools and that containment instead of these images of people in the wild, in the water. And it would be interesting to start to see images, you know, this, the unconscious depic- depiction of swimmers, depiction of swimming become wild swimming, which... um Again, I'm kind of talking about my observations, not his, but that to me, because, you know, I'm obviously very visual, you know, that's sort of how, what I, how I read things. It was really sad. It was really sad. I'm talking about the um, project that uh, the Image Atlas that Taryn Simon and Aaron Schwartz put together. Mm, yes, yes. Uh, Aaron Schwartz, an early and very important internet activist and creator yeah. who was trying to sort of do do all the good things that the internet should do and passed away very really young yeah because he was going to get he was probably going to go to jail for decades because of his work again to just sort of make information free and accessible and again do all the nice things about the internet and uh now we have the internet we have which is much diminished (laughs) um 
But I mean, speaking of these encyclopedias, just reading through one of Deacon's uh, accounts of his swims, when I was reading it, there's just so much, he's talking about so much flora and fauna that I've never heard of, you know, sea pinks, bladder whack, all of this crazy stuff. Yeah. I mean, he packs it in. It's amazing, right? Yes, it absolutely is. And again, and it's in that, it's in that British language. So everyone's like, pokes you know it just has sort of a Beatrix (laughs) Potter kind of childlike naming to these things I couldn't I mean yeah it's almost like you know reading Lear or something it it sounds like playful gibberish but it's all nature I mean and, and yeah he um he just kind of water packs that stuff in and I'm like I know the water references are just gonna gonna fly but isn't it isn't it great like it's 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 so illuminating it's like listening to music when he when he does that when he describes what he sees and he describes it both scientifically and poetically it's it's very it's very good yeah and I think part of that is because this was a book for a UK audience Mm -hmm. and he could just sort of throw in these obscure well, even probably for English people, some of these plants are not, you know, if you live in the north, you, you might not yeah, know what sure. sort of flowers are around a river in yeah. Dorset or whatever, but that he doesn't kind of explain how they look. He just lets that yeah. the, the name sit there and yeah. you can either, you know, do your own research and kind of look it up or you can just take it, as you're saying, as like an onomatopoeia. Yeah, just and wonderful, imagine. just for the the pleasure of the language. I mean, and that's a, it's an interesting thing to bring up too, because although it's 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 a very British book, and you know, it is it's rural. It, it's only one corner of the real England. Do you know what I mean? Like it's a mm-hmm. it's a very um what am, <laughs> what am I trying to say? Like genteel. <laughs> it's a very genteel England. And as you write, Deacon's book imagines swimming as a way of submerging into the non-human world. And uh, in the first chapter, for instance, he writes, quote, You see and experience things when you're swimming in a way that is completely different from any other. You are in nature, part and parcel of it in a far more complete and intense way than on dry land, and your sense of the present is overwhelming. In wild water, you are on equal terms with the animal world around you, in every sense, on the same level." Of course, one consequence of this is that as waterways become closed off to swimming, whether because of pollution or terraforming or private ownership, we're losing the very interface through which we might encounter what's being destroyed. So how do you think about this conundrum? And do you know of any notable attempts in the U.S. or in the U.K. to foster or protect outdoor swimming? Well, there are. Since this book, there has been a huge movement to swim wildly. In the U.K., there's a book called Wild Swimming. And in, in the States, there's, there's books about, um, I list some of them in the piece, about swimming in the open. And I just, um, a friend of mine told me about an app where depending on where you are, it tells you where there's an open body of water you can get in. <laughs> and so there's, there, there is, there is a lot of encouragement to do it. And yes, as you say, based on pollution, um, property and ownership, and, and Deacon talks about that in his book, how this idea of, of property and ownership is kind of inhumane. And are there any attempts to sort of address areas where there's not that wild yeah, I mean, one of my big things and, you know, something I'd love to work on is this idea of um, children learning to swim in open water rather than learning to swim in pools, because that would make it a priority for that water to be clean on a, you know, parental health survival of our children level. And I bring up in the piece in the Netherlands, children are taught to swim in their clothes because, you know, you don't drown in a bathing suit. Usually you drown because you fall into a body of water with your shoes on, with your heavy coat on, with your jeans on, everything that will take you down. And so, you know, going further with that idea, Deacon's idea of the conservatorship of the land, if I had my druthers, it would be teach children to swim in their clothes in open water, (laughs) you know, probably like in water that's kind of cold too, because it's always cold. But (laughs) all of these things, again, as he says, once you're in the water and it's touching every single part of you, you are part of it. And 
and its health is your health, right? So I would love to see more use of open water. And again, more pictures of people in open water, more of that being normal and more of that being kind of standard, I think is great. I mean, my daughter's taking lessons right now and she's doing it on a sort of on a beach. And I love that she is, you know, feeling the water that way, feeling it go cold and hot or cold and warm the way that seawater does. And it's funny too, this makes me think of competitive swimmers who trained in waves, often they're Australian swimmers, but they have a different stroke. There's a whole way, there's a whole kind of evolutionary adaptation that humans can have with with natural water, with wild water. So yeah, I mean, that's one of that's one of my kind of passion projects. I want somehow to get involved with that at a sort of swimming lesson level, something, you know, to do with 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 how we're taught to swim. Yeah, that's really an interesting and valuable skill to have. And in your review, you write about how for your daughter, it's not like she and her classmates can go swim in the Gowanus Canal, because it is a super fun site. (laughs) And do you know of any organizations that are trying to sort of, for people who aren't in rural areas or don't have access to those types of bodies of water, are there any attempts to kind of bring people into swimming in a more inclusive way? Yeah, there's an organization that I'm really interested in. I'm not a part of it because I don't live in London, but it's called Swim Dem Crew. And it brings in swimmers in inner cities and encourages people who don't have access to pools or rural water to come in, use the pool and learn how to swim because there's a lot of, you know, black and brown communities where swimming lessons aren't, you know, part of a childhood. And, and it's, it seems so fun. You know, in London, there's a little bit of open swimming with Hampstead Heath, the Serpentine, there are, the city has made these places a priority. So the, the, the swim dam crew um, swims in pools and Lido's and open water, kind of making all of that available to this this team, it it kind of sounds amazing, and it. I wish there were something like that in in New York. Maybe something like that will start. But yeah, that again, you brought up how, how, or maybe I brought up in the piece how rural in English Deacon's book is, and the sort of opposite of that, the the, the more urban and inner city um, swimming life can be that fun and that community based and that supportive and uh, vulnerable too. And I love that. I love what what I hear that they're doing. Um, maybe I can be a member from here, but they sound yeah. <laughs> sound amazing. No, and I agree. Having grown up in not a rural place, but sort of an exurban city, it is always shocking to me living in New York City. What sorts of things just aren't available to children here unless they're very privileged? You know, just like having a nice public school you can go to, as opposed to starting from like when the child is zero teaching them a new language and sort of doing all these things and like anxiety about the kindergarten which will lead to the grade school which will lead to the middle school which yeah, will lead I to mean, it's access yeah and i think what organizations like swim dem crew are doing too is you know there's they're also making romantic how the body moves in a city and how the body swims in a city. It sort of started with an organization called Run Dem Crew, which is sort of like, how do we run in a city? How do we, you know, run from whatever shortage to Big Ben? Or I think it started in Brixton. But but that idea that, okay, there could be this sylvan kind of beautiful swimming in open water thing that, again, Deacon is so great at describing, romanticizing, investigating, explaining. And then there's also these um, swimmers that are kind of doing that to cities. And I love that it's not sort of prioritizing the country, the countryside. And, you know, in Germany, they swim. In Berlin, there's lots of open swimming where you just swim past buildings that go, you know, right into the canals. And I mean, imagine if Venice, like it'd be so fun to swim in Venice where that water more potable. Yeah. And I guess, you know, we've sort of been talking about Deacon, you know, his interests, uh, his passions. You say that he was already an established public figure in the UK when this book came out. But again, he seems largely unknown here in the US. And could you just sort of contextualize his career and if there are any other books that yeah. that people should or films that he worked on that people should engage with if they find this book fascinating yes yeah there's another figure a little bit like this and there's 
I mean, it's, it's hard for me to rattle off these names because I'm, you know, I'm not British and they're not to hand, but, you know, the, the president of the Soil Society is very well known. And, and the way England can make these sort of, you know, small heroes actually national kind of treasures. And England does that. And I think to some degree, Deacon was that. And Waterlog was published when he was alive. But there's two books that were published posthumously that are incredibly good. One's called Wildwood and the other is Notes from Walnut Tree Farm. And Wildwood is a little bit like Waterlog, but it talks about trees and it talks about being among trees and the life of trees and the life we share with trees. And it's incredibly beautiful. And again, like Waterlog, it it puts you in an element, a wild element, and kind of um, gives you your scale in the scheme of things, which I, I think he's great at. There's this humility. And with Notes from Walnut Tree Farm, the sort of custodians of his estate, I think it's Robert McFarlane, and I think it was his son and, and other um, friends of his went through his numerous journals and put together this diaristic year of his um, of his life on his, you know, in one place, this time not swimming up or wandering around, but of notes on his life. And it's, it's, it's beautiful. It goes through the seasons and it's um, these small little paragraphs and, and parts and thoughts. And you really hear his voice. Again, I don't know him, but knowing his writing and knowing his POV through his writing is such a gift. Part of my research too was contacting the University of Anglia who have his whole archive. And I asked for as many photographs or films or footage or anything of his moat on his farm because I wanted to, um, Harper's asked me to do some some art to accompany the piece. And as I am sort of want to do, I, I paint the same thing over and over and over again. So I wanted as many um, images of it. And there's a painter, Ivan Hitchens. It's with an O, Ivan Hitchens. And he's from the same area. And I, he's one of my favorite um, British painters. And I sort of thought that that stroke had the same um had the same spirit as Deacon's writing there's something loose and I don't know inflected with nature in in Hitchens landscapes and so I wanted to do these landscapes and looking at his archive was was really interesting and I also sort of went you know online and you know searched up hashtag you know walnut tree farm and there were people who because you can you can stay there now it's as a sort of a bed and breakfast and um you can get in and swim in the moat i think rebecca mead actually did that well that sounds like a dream yeah right (laughs) absolutely Um. (laughs) but there's this footage uh that this one visitor guest there had taken and he'd sort of taken his i guess guessing iphone and sort of walked out of the cabin and over to the pond and i just tried to grab stills from this very amateur footage of it because it was the the um moat on his in his phone looked so good yeah and i mean it's interesting to think about the importance in deacon's book of moats you know because the book begins with deacon swimming in the moat on his farm and you write in the piece that moat swims are your favorite and a moat represents a fairly drastic reshaping of the so-called natural landscape but yeah. it creates a space for frogs and water sprites and other living things. And this apparent contradiction seems like maybe a good way into what you describe as the deep idea of habitat, of mm. living in a place with not on or off the place. So could you talk more about that sensibility and how you would contrast it with other ways of relating to place. Sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, gosh, moat as metaphor is huge, right? I I love that yes. you brought that up. I didn't I didn't even think of that for the piece. But yes, when when Deacon talks about swimming in his moat, it is it is a bit of like he's like that's his privy chamber, which you know bathrooms were and bathtubs were, right? So it's both his and he's sharing it. And it's kind of, you know, it's a it's a man-made thing. It, it's meant to protect, keep out. It's also meant to sort of contain. So there's all sorts of interesting history on the moat. And also it, when I think about it, kind of the dichotomy between, and I mentioned this, Deacon's, you know, hold, 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 let go, let go, let go. I guess it's just human. Stay, 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 go, go, go. And also this sort of um, 
you know, mine, 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 yours, yours, yours. And, and I think that moat that he does keep up, you know, he, he weeds it, he, he clears the, you know, debris away from it. He sort of follows the patterns of what the organisms in the moat need. And he takes care of it and dredges it regularly or did. And I sort of feel like that moat's an example of giving something back to nature, you know, an unnaturally occurring body of water. So it's sort of halfway between a pool halfway between public private or i mean there must be some word for natural like for animals and nature that's public like what would it be um you know agri public or something do you know what i mean like them, yeah those yeah. guys those things <laughs> those like those flies and stuff and so yeah i, I think i'm one i'm kind of you know thinking as i talk which isn't always a great idea but i guess to answer your question I mean, this this was it too. This there's this spirit that must exist in in all of us, which is again that that stay, go, hold on, let go, which was you know loving home, the idea of of, of where you are, taking care of it. You know, this idea of house proud, this idea of shelter, uh, you know, very fundamental human need, and sort of how we don't favor that when we see how we get along with everything else. And Deacon's book really does. I've, I've talked a little bit earlier about scale and sort of saying, okay, we might think this is like, this This is where we live in ours, but really it's just this 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 little thing that's gonna last, you know, maybe a decade if, if lucky, but then kind of, you know, crumble away and ebb away and, and nature will hopefully, or not, I mean, <laughs> like kind of prevail. Yeah, these are bigger things. I mean, the, the the water levels are supposed to rise, which means you know New York underwater, yep. twenty years or you know the, all of this is this is life. It's so much bigger, <laughs> so much bigger than we I think ever really think about on a consistent level. Well, it's hard. Yeah, it's hard to I mean, imagine. You think it, it's death. It's death. It's exactly. Like you're of it's death. it's yeah, <laughs> yeah. And also, you know, like you say, it's society is constructed. You know, cities are constructed, and it's like no nature here. The landscape is controlled. Everything is. You can't have bugs in your house, mm-hmm. which is you know, if you live in a country house, that might not be as true. But you know, obviously, you still don't want bugs in your house. Maybe, but they're still they're still around. Yeah, okay. right? they're still in the walls. Things that you don't want are around, always present. And the things that you do, you know, the birds and the wildlife you do see in a city, you appreciate that. But again, it's very controlled. Yeah. Oh my God, can I tell a story? No, absolutely. This brings up just last night. We, you know, out on the North Fork, I stay in a little kind of. Um, you know, just a, a summer un, uninsulated, um, not winterized little cottage in the summers. <laughs> Last night, my my daughter was in the bathroom and she pointed out a mushroom that was growing in the corner. <laughs> and this beautiful little little mushroom, this with this sort of like tawny kind of colored mushroom. And um, I was like, okay, all right. <laughs> just didn't quite, but it was so beautiful. And the next day, I was sort of vacuuming, and she said, "Don't touch the mushroom. Like, leave it." And it, it it had spored like it, it it whatever the verb is for what mushrooms do, but we just left it because it was it's quite sweet. But yeah, you don't we're trained to not want mushrooms in our bathrooms, and but it was pretty sweet. It was nice. Yeah, because it's again, it's returning this question of permeability, mm-hmm. and that's something that runs throughout your entire review, where you're taking these little um, the indelible swim vignettes of your own. And kind of trying to echo a voice or kind of trying to respond to the text in a way that incorporates, you know, in a fluid way, as opposed to sort of establishing the critical distance. Yeah. Well, I think Deacon, even in saying indelible swims, like those swims disappear, right? The minute you get out of the water, there's no, if there's no, you know, photographic record, and usually you're not carrying a camera, you can't take, you know, can't take pictures when you're in the water. So there is a very ephemeral quality to swimming in general, the fact that he calls those, you know, it's his term, the indelible swim. It's only memory. It's only in this lifetime. It's only contained in ourselves. Like there's a very small use of indelible rather than, you know, marking or building or um, constructing a memory. And I love that he uses that term because it's, it doesn't make sense, an indelible swim, you know, on paper. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, I guess I'll ask this last question because I was I was curious to hear, as you said, you you provided illustrations for this piece, which were fantastic. And, you know, I'd love to hear more about Ivan Hitchens, who who you sort of drew inspiration from and why him in particular for this Yes. Yeah, I mean, he has, he'd painted the Suffolk landscape before. This is a, you know, Hitchens is a painter who influenced me in a, in a huge way. I'm not sure because I'm not great on British art history. He might have been part of a school called the St. Ives School, but I'm, I'm, I'm not positive. And when I thought about um, Harper's request to provide some artwork, you know, I could have done a portrait of Deacon. He, he's, you know, quite interesting looking. I could have obviously done something around the idea of of his farm or or water or or landscape but I I sort of had in the back of my head Hitchens landscapes and I and I don't know if um you know the other thing that Deacon does wonderfully is he brings in all these other references and he talks about Hockney obviously with the pools and swimming and his art history is great but I don't know if he's ever mentioned Hitchens I'd have to look it up in the university archives again but I just get a feeling that there's something aligned there between their both use of and, and love of nature. And so when I did those pieces, you know, I did, I actually did, I think, 16 of them. Harper's published six of them, but um, there's 16 studies of, of Deacon's moat. And again, tried to sort of be led by Hitchens' love of that landscape and Deacon's love of that landscape. Hitchens, you know, it, love through images that he, you know, painted and, and Deacon's love through how he wrote about that moat. So yeah, I mean, look, look up his work. It's beautiful. Really. I'm trying to think of an American painter like that, but nothing, maybe Milton Avery or I don't know. There's also these uh, Canadian painters and better with Canadian art history, uh, the group of seven, how they went out. This is sort of a huge, everyone in Canada knows about the group of seven. That That's what's in banks, you know, like calendars and banks. And you're sort of fed to the teeth of the group of seven. But they too, <laughs> you know, in the 30s went out and painted the landscape in a, in, a, in a completely different way than had been done before. One of the sort of founders, Tom Thompson, sort of disappeared in a lake and you know, and his, I think he was 40 and it's been this kind of mystery, but that work, Hitchens, you know, how Deacon writes, it, I think it's all part of how, how small we are, this scale that, that I want to think about more myself about, you know, just my scale in relation to, to the natural world. Yeah. And the Gowanus, Gowanus Canal. <laughs> <laughs> And now I speak with Jillian Osborne, author of Green, Green, Green. So given the concern this essay collection has with place and context, it seems fitting to ask a kind of question that people don't always ask in interviews, which is, where are you and (laughs) what plants can you see? Um, I love that as a beginning question. So I'm in Santa Barbara, California, where I've lived since 2018. And I lived here three years prior to that earlier, 2012 to 2015. And I live in this little house and the space where I work kind of looks out on this little ragtag garden. So I can see a whole bunch of plants, mostly my view is taken up by the brown grass on the hill side because we're in the dry, dry season now. But I can see eucalyptus and native live oak and pepper tree, which is a plant that the Spanish planted a lot here. And then things growing in the garden, which is a mix of native and further away plants too. That sounds wonderful. I can see where I am. There's a there's some rooftop that's been tricked out and I can't tell if it's going to be a restaurant or a bar in New York. or just something. Yeah. In New York. You just can't tell. If or maybe it's just a thing for a rich person. Yeah. One, one a glorious event there and then leave. We shall see. One of my <laughs> earliest encounters with plants. I used to sell plants at the union square farmer's market in New York. And, oh. and I met a lot of 
landscapers through that and helped some worked with some of them and and landscaping in new york was like that it was like taking the plants up the elevator to the roof yep. <laughs> yep. the multi-million dollar penthouse garden yeah. is always you know if you look up to the very tippy top of the building you might be able to glimpse it yeah uh it's glory but yeah <laughs> yeah um in the opening essay of this collection reading natural history in the winter which is about what it sounds like and and also so much else because you write the this essay is about how writing takes place within scenes of experience and in the presence of other writing which through the friction of living on language produces that seasonal jolt the unsettling impulse of then within now mm-hmm. and it seems like all of these essays are in part about this same thing Mm -hmm. about how reading and writing take place within specific contexts. Mm -hmm. And as you write at the end of one section, reading takes place. Mm -hmm. Could you talk about why that aspect of literature or of writing compels you and why it seems worth calling attention to? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's something that I love encountering in the things that I read, like any moments where it feels like writing is happening in real time, really compel me. And there's a kind of energy, like a living energy and writing that feels that way. And I think similarly, I think there's lots of different ways to think about what the context of a written work is. And in my training, you know, as a scholar, the primary context that people focus on is history, is human history, you know, and like, what are the social and cultural contexts that contribute to the production of a work of literature? But I've always been really just interested in expanding that context. Like, what is the context of a work of literature? How do we extend it beyond the human to the more than human? And then I think there's also something, I think there's certain writers who draw attention to the performative quality of writing in their, you know, the way they read their work. So like I've been reading Cecilia Vicuña's performances, transcriptions of that recently. So that's one example. But but I think there's something almost performative and embodied about reading as well that often gets occluded or covered up or not talked about, that there's a real, we respond to what we read or to what we hear or the words that we encounter in all kinds of ways. And I think those are all important facets of reading. I don't think there's just one correct way to approach or engage with a text. And uh, as a follow-up to that, I was struck by a part on page uh, 16 through 17 where you write, quote, not being a good reader if even a very responsible one. So what do you think makes a good reader or a responsible reader or a responsive reader? You, you, you seem to be suggesting that they're not necessarily connected. Yeah, I mean, I felt like in my training in graduate school, I was being taught to be a responsible reader, which was different from a responsive reader. And I feel like I'd always been a responsive reader, like I would hear things, you know, or read them and have like a real physical response to them. And there's that other passage, which is actually in a letter that Thomas Wentworth Higginson writes to his wife, but about his encounter with Emily Dickinson, where he says, reports this really famous thing that she said about how do I know it's poetry? I know like when it makes me so cold that nothing will ever warm me and my, the top of my head goes flying off and it's, I'm paraphrasing, but that's the gist of it. And I think that kind of, I definitely had that response to words as a young person. And I felt like there was this push to kind of, in my training to that, like, one shouldn't read that way. One should read not for the joy and the pleasure and the, you know, whatever of it, but to, to enter into some kind of critical conversation with others. And so I think part of the project of this book was to get back to that initial responsive reading. Cause I, I think, yeah, I just think it's important for the life of literature in the world for people to feel allowed to read that way, to have those kinds of responses to words. Yeah, no, um, I would 
also say that the experience you describe of um, taking the pleasure out of something that you're supposed to be studying and just looking at it as a purely critical thing, very common among <laughs> yeah, grad <definitely>. programs. <laughs> not going to say it's just your training. Yeah. But it runs across the board because I think, you know, even many college students feel that way often, yeah. you know, like they don't yeah. feel invited to respond to text or to, you know, vibrate with them in whatever, mm-hmm. whatever way. Like I, I'm interested in in works of literature that feel useful for people, you know? Yeah. No, and um, I wanted to go back to reading Natural History in the Winter, that essay, because it centers around the experience of reading lists of plant species found in particular locales. And again, I think this is this is getting at this notion of responsiveness because it's a, it was a common form in the 19th century of botanical writing, just lists of these different um, plants that the writer has found and a little description of how, how well they're growing. And, and you write, reading natural history in the winter recreates the scene of writing, flooding the bareness of transcription with the fullness of everything living and dying outside books. The book or the poem or the list becomes a window. And one thing these essays seem to be doing is entertaining a skepticism about what literature can do if it isn't a window, if it tries to be alive by itself. The winter associations in that phrase, bareness of transcription, are picked up again in the line, how barren and barely a thing was a poem. So one question all of this raises is, which is more like a list, a poem or an essay? And which is more like a window? (laughs) That's such a good question. Hmm. Well, first, I want to say something. So to this point about like a skepticism of not wanting literature to be alive, I'm not sure that's actually right. Because I think part of what made me so interested in lists and in these really bare articulations of language is that they could have these really powerful, almost outsized emotional and cognitive intellectual effects on people. And, and I certainly felt that way reading these lists of plants. I was just so moved by this record of attention and responsiveness really to these individual plants and their particular you know, manifestation of growth at that moment. So I think in a way, what surprised me is that I find almost that like the more naked a piece of writing is, or the more stripped down it can be, the more alive it seems to me. And that's one of the things about Dickinson's work that's always appealed to me so much. Um, But in general, like very short poems often appeal to me for that reason, because they absorb a lot of space and they hold a lot of emptiness, which in and of itself makes space for other things to be kind of there with them. So in that sense, I think, you know, a poem is more like a list or a list is more like a poem. But I think the essay can do that as well, like can gesture outside of itself. And I mean, I think the way in, in these essays that I pivot from readings of literature and science and history to my own life, to things that are happening in that moment is a way to kind of demonstrate like the space between all those things Mm. and to welcome that into the space of the essay too. So I think with all works of writing, I'm interested in that permeability, which is the window quality, you know, like what can we see through this? What can be seen through this? How can this be held up like a you know, a veil or a scrim? And how does that actually make what's beyond it even more present? I mean, it's interesting you say a veil or a scrim because those are semi-opaque. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's and, and the true. And the window, <laughs> ideally the window should be clean and see-throughable. You know, it's funny, so <laughs> it's so true, but I'm looking at these windows of my house is kind of old and they're like old windows, you know, looking outside and they have that wobbly glass. Mm. And I think also, I, I think I write about this a little bit in the book, but I grew up going to this Quaker meeting, like in the woods in upstate New York and all the glasses there, were these, you know, lead panes and they would warp what you would see outside. So it was like transparent, but also not, not an exact you know, mimetic replica at all. Right. No, and I think it's an interesting point to make just 
because again, it's the idea of a window versus the the window itself. And right. sort of like when you're writing about the color green, but also the feeling of green, but also green in a literal sense, like all these different sort of permutations of this stuff. Like, again, it's such a refreshing and not entirely subjective, but also deeply kind of, I don't know, you feel very close. I felt very close to you when reading this. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> and in, 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 yeah, it was, it was an interesting, it was, it was very intimate, but also allowed me to kind of spiral off into my own well actually to say one thing about that like I find that sort of intimacy with a reader easier to achieve in an essay than than in a poem Mm. and I don't know what totally what that's about I think there are lots of poets who are able to speak directly to readers but I think for me like the poem space is more about bringing things outside of the human, like closer to the human. And the essay is a very human form. <laughs> it's like very fallible and messy and, you know, brings together a lot of things. And yes, and exists in many shapes more than yes, exactly. what people might accept. <laughs> right. Totally. I wanted to go back to Emily Dickinson for a bit because there are many recurring threads woven throughout this book, but one that appears the greatest number of times, which is intriguing because it's such a specific thing, is the story of Emily Dickinson's nostalgic reference in a letter to Thomas Wentworth Higginson to what she calls Dr. Hitchcock's book on the flowers of North America. And uh, this is a book that turns out not to exist, Exactly. So <laughs> right. <laughs> could, you, could you tell us a little bit about the context of this letter and this relationship? Mm-hmm. And what is it about this moment, this book, that made you keep returning to it? Yeah, okay. So Higginson is one of Dickinson's most interesting correspondents. She kept, you know, she wrote letters to a lot of people. Her letters are amazing. They're very performative. Like one of the things I love about her letters is that there are these crazy juxtapositions often where she's moving from one thing to the next. And the letters feel very alive because of that, because it it just feels like this pivot, you know, this spin. And so this letter, that part you just quoted is from the very end of the letter. It's from the 1870s. And she's writing to Higginson and it's fascinating. She's referencing other things that she's read, including he wrote this article in the Atlantic, I think, called Letters to a Young Contributor, which which led to her first writing to him. It was basically like, if you want to be a published poet, here's some things you should consider. And she wrote to him in response and sent him some of her poems and said, do you have time to tell me if they're alive? Capital A. And he advised her not, you know, famously advised her not to publish, that there was something sort of spasmodic about her use of meter, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So so he gets kind of a bad rap in Dickinson's studies, partly because of that. But he was also one of the first editors of her work um, and, you know, stripped out some of the, the typographical, well, not typographical, but written, you know, her variants and dashes and stuff like that. So, but he's a really interesting intellectual figure in the 19th century in that he has his like fingers on the pulse of a lot of different stuff. He's really interested in educational reform for women. He was the leader of one of the all black regiments during the civil war. He writes about exercise and natural history and all kinds of stuff. So she also references some of the other things that she's read of his in that letter. And then concludes with this turn to Hitchcock. And I think, I mean, so many things about that, there's so many things about that particular fragment that appealed to me, like just the way she is using absence, you know, she capitalizes it in the letter, it takes on this sort of allegorical heft. Mm -hmm. And then the thought about like, okay, well, what does it mean to read something as a comfort for absence? How many kinds of absence are we trying to comfort when we read? particularly to read something that's so like naked and stripped down as a list of plants. So there's just, I just felt further and further invited in to rethinking through all these questions of what does it mean to read something really bare? How does the literal and the imagination interact? You know, she's talking about reading something that's supposedly just a list, but she's having all these emotional and imaginative responses to it. 
Yeah, but I should say there's lots of other phrases in Dickinson's letters that I could like write entire books about, probably. But that was one of them, you know. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, yeah. it was, it was, it, yeah, yeah. But no, that one is central to this to this project for sure. Yeah, and how does all this relate to the idea of childishness? Mm, I'm glad you asked that. Yeah, because she says to him you know, when I was a child, I used to read Dr. Hitchcock. So yeah, and he in his first accounts of meeting her frequently refers to her as childish too, in his reports to his wife, a letter to his wife. And yeah, I'm really interested in the idea of the childish. So in her work, she frequently taps into the prevalence of poetry that was written for children and about children in the 19th century. Poetry was a very important form in the life of children at that time. And I think I just love the way she plays with it. Like, I think there's something about childishness. When we say something is childish, it's almost always derogatory, right? It's undeveloped. It's not, um, I don't know, adults. <laughs> um, and and there are ways in which that term also has been applied to belittle, you know, not just children or women, but also like other peoples entirely, like Native Americans often were depicted as, you know, children and Longfellow's Hiawatha was like thought to be, which is this, you know, long poem about an indigenous leader was thought to be like particularly appropriate for children to read because it was also about these, you know, quote unquote childish civilization, you know? Yeah. And so I just, I'm just interested in like, what is going on when we think that, <laughs> yeah, like why, why? And then, it, cause also at the same time, children achieve these like feats of language and imagination and, perception and responsiveness to context and receptivity to like time that many people, you know, especially artists <laughs> spend their life trying to recover. Right. Yeah. And I, so I, I really value that child mind and what it makes possible. And then also like the possibilities of veiling oneself in something considered, you know, not fully developed or not fully adult. Yeah, no, I I think that's really really smart. I would I would also say, I mean, again, I don't want to be like I we didn't have damn iPads when I was a kid, but we did not. <laughs> I did not. And I remember a lot of childhood yeah. being, especially when I was very young, just sort of sitting mm -hmm. and observing the world and just kind of getting lost in thought. And you know, like my aunt or someone would be like, "Violet, where did you go?" <laughs> and I was just mm -hmm. like, oh, I don't know. And just sort of taking yeah. it all in because it's still fresh and new to you and you're still trying to appreciate it right. or just it's it's sort of um, a cliche, but it's worth repeating that it's like you still have this time to feel wonder about things that mm -hmm. are perhaps otherwise you get older, you get jaded, you get sick of them. So <laughs> it's it's right. like that, that, that appreciation and that curiosity yeah. is just so key. Yeah. Yeah. And also like the aspect of play too. Yes. Like I think play is important. <laughs> Absolutely. And here's another perhaps playful question. Let's talk about lichen. Um, <laughs> could you start your essay lichen writing, you know, mm -hmm. the, the little growth, uh, is it a, it's not a fungus, is it? No, it's not. It's a it's a composite organism yes. that is made up of fungi and algae, and often, yeah, increasingly like thought to be multiple organisms, not just two. For a while, it was you know, the understanding was that it was these two forms that were symbiotically or maybe parasitically involved, and now the thinking it's is it's actually multiple, right? And so lichen writing is the final the final essay in the book with an anecdote about a friend who asked you, when did you first get interested in writing? I mean, lichen. <laughs> yeah. So what yeah. is it slip pointing <laughs> to for you? I mean, you sort of hinted at, you hinted at it by defining what lichen is, mm -hmm. not mm -hmm. like in. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, I'm interested in writing as collaboration on a number of levels like with texts from the past 
how how when we read anything before you know the present are we connecting collaborating with being with voices that are absent otherwise and then you know also just with people like the letter exchange with Juliana Chow that's in the book is something you know I have other projects like that with other friends I just really like the process of writing with people and then when I teach writing it's very collaborative too like I write a lot with my students so I think that that part of the process of writing is about being with is about bringing multiple things together into one new shape or form that wouldn't exist without that togetherness so that's the slip <laughs> to lichen. <laughs> oh, but then I guess also the other thing too about lichen, I mean, there's so many things, but you know, I'm interested in the way it's not like the most apparent feature of the landscape in general. I'm very interested in what, what's the wilderness that's at hand, you know, what, what's the wildness that we can encounter in, in, you know, in New York city or any, you know, any space, like what is there, and lichen is everywhere. It's really everywhere. <laughs> and that's really appealing. And it's, you know, the way Tuckerman, Edward Tuckerman, who I write about in the essay, who's one of the U.S.'s first lichenologists, he really admires the humility of lichen as, as an entity. And, and that really spoke to me, too. And I was actually going to ask about Tuckerman, mm-hmm. um, Edward Tuckerman, who's the botanist, uh, referred to it analogy and affinity, two ways of approaching the study of plants. And you write, affinity in writing is the respons- is like responsiveness to context while reading. Mm-hmm. So could you t- talk a little bit more about that connection? Yeah. So yeah, one of the things I was exploring in that, that essay, the like, like in writing, you know, so there's kind of this pun in the title that's about making connections. And I was just thinking about all the ways in language that we do that. You know, there's so many literary devices are about saying this thing is like this other thing, but not really, um, yes. you know, but like and differing <laughs> levels of how real it is or not. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But there's something about that, like connection that, that gives us, you know, a jolt of imagined pleasure or something. So I was thinking about, about that. And he, he has these two different, he says analogy and affinity are two ways of looking at plants in relationship to each other. And in general, I was more interested, you know, I was just interested in thinking about how slippery all of them are, you know, analogy, mm-hmm. especially because you can say, this is like, this is like, this is like this. And like, what is it really revealing about the thing in itself? But then affinity, I mean, I think partly because it has that connotation of emotional proximity or connection, that term appealed to me. And yeah, it's it's about, you know, if you have an affinity with something, there's a resonance or a kind of kinship that binds you to it. So I think it, it goes back to this, this question of, you know, responsive reading. What does it mean to be a responsive reader or to feel an mm-hmm. affinity with a certain writer or text or way of using language? And given the interwoven quality of this book, where images and ideas keep returning in new variations, and all the essays seem to be in conversation with each other, it's it's surprising to turn to the acknowledgement section and learn that most of these essays were published as standalone pieces mm-hmm. before becoming a book. So did you know, as you were writing these essays, that you were writing a book, or did that emerge uh like and like at some point in the process? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting question. I think I didn't know I was writing this book. I think at various times I thought I was writing a book, but it wasn't, it often wasn't this one. And a lot of these ended up being things that I turned away from more straightly scholarly projects, you know, it was like mm. to work on. So, and then there's quite a spread of time. You know, the earliest piece was the letter exchange with Juliana Chow about California poppies cultivated in New England in the 19th century. And that set a certain kind of tone and introduced these questions of, you know, collaboration, writing with. And then, yeah, it's, I don't know. It, it, the question of like how the book emerged, I think it, it was different things at different times. And then it came into its current shape fairly late in the game as things began to speak to each other more. Yeah. 
it's interesting to hear you say that because they're again they just everything flows together so seamlessly and is in conversation with each other so yeah i think that part of that came at a later revision stage but i i would say that like the essay as a form really appeals to me like i feel like the ideas i have are on the scale of an essay and mm-hmm. that's another thing about scholarly training in literature is that you're kind of you're expected to develop an argument at the scale of a book and that like never really worked for me. I was like, I don't want to just say that same thing across a book, but I can think of other ways of connecting, letting things speak to each other and create a kind of resonance across, across pieces. So, yeah. All right. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. This was a real pleasure to speak with you about this book. Thank you so much. Thank you for making the time and spending time with the work. It's great to, to talk. (laughs) You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save 